Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. On this week's episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, I'll be interviewing not one, but three wonderful poets about their collaboration to create the book Chalk Song. Susan Berger-Jones is an architecture and poet. Her written and visual work has appeared in Drunken Boat, No Exit, and two anthologies of ekphrastic poems published by Off the Park Press. Gail Batchelor lives in Cambridge. Her work has been published by Tupelo Quarterly, This Rough Beast, Colorado Review, Spoke For, and in the poetry anthologies New Smoke and Triumph of Poverty. Judson Evans is a poet whose work is focused on crossing genres and collaboration. He was recently named the Hyben Editor of Frog Pond, the Journal of the Haiku Society of America. In 2007, he was chosen as an emerging poet by the John Yao for the Academy of American Poets and won the Philip Booth Poetry Prize from Salt Hill Review in 2013. Susan, Gail, and Judson, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be here. So excited to have all three of you here. We're somehow going to make this, this collage of poems and poets, poets work. So before discussing Chalk Song, could each of you share what attracts you to the craft of poetry? And Susan, how about you go first? Wow, that's a really great question. I, um, I grew up with visual arts and um, I love sound. That's really my thing. And so, you know, poetry allows me to use sound in a way that's expressive and to figure out how to do that while still accessing meaning. Cool. And Judson? I think that um, I started writing when I was very young and I remember discovering some books of poetry. I think my mother had them and it seemed like such an alien world to me. It was partly that I didn't understand it that made it seem kind of magical and mystical. It seemed like language cut away from um, just from ordinary life having its own existence. And I started playing around and, uh, and writing poetry when I was really young. And it always seemed like it had this opening into another world for me. So it's always had that fascination. Cool. And Gail? I just love words and I love, uh, and I love song and poetry seems, you know, obviously, obviously the perfect marriage of those two. So that's, uh, that's been my attraction to poetry. And for me, it was 10th grade English teacher. I'd always been interested in writing, and my parents are both professional musicians, classical musicians, so I grew up around very creative people, and I, and I always had this inkling of being having an artistic side. And I'm also a software engineer, or was, and uh, I found that coding, which I loved from a young age, and poetry have a lot of similarities, but that's a whole other story. Uh, so in preparing for this interview, I not only read Chalk Song several times, but also watch the Werner Herzog documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, that inspired this collaborative effort. So this, this book is really a twofer because I had not heard of this documentary and, and it was just a wonderful uh, documentary to watch. So I think anyone who buys this book should also watch the documentary, you'll be compelled to. So what attracted you to this wonderful film? 
Well, I guess for me, several things. I mean, I've uh, seen many of Herzog's films, and so I, I really admire him as a filmmaker, really enjoy his work. And I think also, you know, we had been, we, we've worked together as poets for a number of years, focusing on a lot of ecrastic poetry. And so um, I think that the idea, I, I guess I saw the film first before we really thought about the idea of writing the book, but it just um, just fascinated by uh, by ancient history, by art, by the the you know ideas or the um, sorry by by the idea that we don't know that much about the people who did the paintings. But so so there's a mystery. There's mystery there that just and I don't know. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful artwork. So maybe then Susan and Judson respond to this building on that. What was your uh, what was your first reaction after watching the film? Independent of it being a becoming a, an inspiration for poetry in a book. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, Judson is or is still, I think, teaching classes on the cave. So like that was a huge layer for us. And then also just for me, the it's just incredible to think of yourself as a human being. What were they thinking? Who were they? It was the first sign of art. You know, it's a language, but it's also the first sign that we have of art. And what are the beginnings of art? If you're a poet, you really want to sort of dive into that and figure that out. So, yeah, that's what it was for me. Yeah, for me, I think the sense of communication across this enormous gap of 45,000 years, the whole question of how a handprint on a wall could still touch us and how we can communicate something be in a sense something beyond words because of course these are all kind of visual gestures but it's really inspiring to think about how the cave wall itself somehow contained that that tactile uh, impression of people so far away and also the sense of time how time collapses the sense of how the acoustics of the cave in the sense of you know we learned that there were the places where the paintings are, are the places that are most acoustically live in the cave. So we know that there was music. And so that also was really inspiring. And then just the three of us had done a lot of work, as, as has been said about ekphrastic poetry, where we're trying to deal with visual art. This seemed like the ultimate challenge in thinking about visual art. You know, and my, my takeaway was one of the reasons I was determined to, uh, to publish my first book a couple of years ago was to get some permanence uh, beyond my mortality. And I work in the tech industry as my day job where everything you work on will ultimately be the word used in the tech industry is deprecated. Uh, when you delete software, uh, which is called tech debt, you celebrate it. So uh, actually wiping things off the face of the tech earth is something that's celebrated as a necessary step of evolution. Whereas this is the opposite. They the, whoever created these achieved a, 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 some element of immortality. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. So while the uh, poems are attributed individually, this is a collaborative book. How did working together towards a single shared book, united by a shared inspiration, not a loosely assembled collection, evolve your writing? What did you learn from each other creating Chalk Song? So to help you out, uh, Gail, why don't you go first? Um, what did we learn from, what did I learn from Susan and Judson? Um, I think that 
you know, I'm very inspired by both of them as poets, uh, you know, and, and as and as people. So I think that the willingness to, I don't know, kind of jump off, you know, frequently jump off a cliff in terms of experimentation and idea and engagement uh, on so many, so many levels. There were so many uh, instances where. It, our, our method was to share poems with each other and then we would comment and critique or, you know, steal lines and sort of jump off that way. And, and I was always so um, really in awe of what they brought, you know, to my poems and what they took from them. And so I think uh, um, I just learned a lot about, um, I don't know, you know, experimentation, or experimentation investigation, um, those are, I guess there's a couple of things. So Susan and Judson, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, nuance this just a little bit more. Uh, were you about to hit send to your colleagues and then stopped because of what you were learning from them? And it changed the nature of you thinking of when a poem was ready to be shared because you had these two collaborators, collaborators you were working so closely with. We well, you know I'm going to jump in because um, we're all so different and our process is so different. And it was incredible to be in a situation where you didn't have to worry about that mm. ever. As a matter of fact, I think we I was messier than ever. And I know I frustrated my partners because um, I could just send like multiple versions. They were changing a mile a minute. And it, I knew there at no point would there ever be judgment or did I have to feel like it was finished? You know, and that's kind of like the cave, too, because these artists were drawing over one another over like centuries. Mm. So there's no feeling of finishing. Yeah, I think, I, I don't think that I felt, I certainly didn't feel self-conscious. I think I, I think I was launching these things out to Gail and Susan, really curious about, you know, how they'd land or, or where they go with them. And we often were, uh, as, as Gail said, um, or I don't know, if, maybe Susan has said this, we, we really have different approaches. We write differently. I think that it's always always exciting and to see that there was another way to come to the material. There were all these different ways to come to the material. So it was partly it was partly a state of excitement of like what what new thing was going to happen and how were people going to read what we were doing and see where we were going. Um, so I think the you know we this wasn't the first time we'd shared work with each other either. So we had we had sort of played with sharing work and, uh, and and getting different kinds of responses from, you know, different members of the group. Yeah, can I, I add one? Sure. Sorry, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, we're, we're kind of like, you know, so in the film, right, there's this group of people who are investigating the cave. You know, you have, a, you have filmmakers, you have anthropologists, you have the perfumier, perfumier um, and we're like that, right? So we were all, you know, in that in the cave together, investigating and bringing our own uh, perspectives and learning from each other um, about sort of what what did the other person see and how did together we create some understanding or meager understanding, I think, of what what that was all about. Yeah, I was going to say it adds to what Judson and Gail are saying, and that is that it's just surprising. You get a poem from someone about something you looked at, and it's completely different than your point of view. And then how do you add to that? How do you respond to it? That's the interesting thing. 
I mean, one, one thing that definitely reading this book, it makes me hungry to do a collaborative effort with another poet. So that's in the back of my to do, my long to do list. Absolutely. So, Gail, your poem, Chavot Pont d'Arc, opens Chalk Song with the line I am dark and near dying. Such a compelling way to open the book. How did the three of you approach ordering and editing the book and making critical choices, including which poem should lead and which line should lead the collection? Wow. Uh, I'd say Judson and Gail are better at that than I was. <laughs> they really were. <laughs> well, that was one of the early, that was, I think, the first poem that I wrote, first or second that I wrote. You know, not really thinking about it, it might be first in the book, but I think we chose that poem because I am um, just have to look at it. You know, I should have it memorized. It's only several lines, but, you know, because it's situated, I think just it situated us in the cave with mm -hmm. the voice of, Either the well, really the voice of the artist, the voice of the the animal in the drawing, and and the sort of the cave itself. So um, that's an answer, at least to the first poem. That do you want to guys jump in on the ordering? It was a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, I we 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 wrote and wrote and then stopped and said, you know, where where are we going? Are there sections and we came up with different, we went in two different directions. One direction was thinking conceptually, like, is this, is this a rite of passage? Is this a journey? What are the parts of that? And like, I do a lot of work with those kinds of ideas in my teaching of literature. So I, I was thinking a lot about that. But then we also went in the opposite direction of just taking something that was a detail um, and, and using that as a as kind of a heading. So like Bo is the name of one of one of the particular uh, poems. But then buried constellation was just kind of a concept that we threw around this. And, and so sometimes we went with big picture plans of rites of passage, separation, ordeal, reintegration, that kind of or thinking about kind of Blakean or Gnostic ideas of you know innocence experience, organized innocence. Like we played around with both conceptual things and then also just intuitive ideas that these poems belong here or there. I mean, the first poem I wrote, I believe, was um, Microbiome, which ended up being the last poem in the book. And I think, you know, with that poem, I think we all felt like that doesn't, that's that's a, a poem that feels like it's late. It's late in this whole process. Mm -hmm. And other poems had a sense of earliness to them that are connected with our sense of the beginnings of human consciousness or, or that kind of waking up of humanity. So there was kind of, that was part of it too. Great. Well, many of the poems in this collection mix concrete images from Cave of Forgotten Dreams and surreal images. Judson's poem, Enchanted Entropy is one example. You write, or enumerate smeared torch marks of river music under the bow of the arch with 5,000 years between each page of sheet music. Was taking the documentary film imagery in surreal directions a conscious choice or just something that happened organically? Hmm. I think it has to do with just our attempt to get this material into language without trying to describe. Mm -hmm. So we all had done, a, you know, our work with John Yao, John Yao as a, as a teacher and poet is someone who in very, is very interested in avoiding 
pure description in language or our too literal approach to language. And we, in our in working with ekphrastic poetry in particular, so John threw down this kind of gauntlet to us as a, as a kind of test to say, you know, painters are out there doing some really amazing work in the contemporary world. Um, and poet, can poets go in that same direction? Is it possible to write about works of art without describing them, without narrating, in a way where you take language and you make language itself have that volatility, that sense of, of color and power? And, um, and so I think that there was a certain impetus for us to let language have the charge of the red, you know, the red handprint on the wall, or thinking about because the pigment that was used, it wasn't just paint from the paint store. They took red ochre, crushed it, mixed it with animal blood. It was a it was a volatile substance, or it's blown onto the wall. So, I think we all had a sense that language here had to be something much more open ended and much more live, and not situate us too carefully you know, uh, from point A to point B, because I don't think we could have done this if we were simply describing the film or recreating scenes of the film. Now, film exists. It has its own reality. Yeah, I was going to say it, it's the same thing, but you talking, instead of talking about something from a distance at it, you talk from it, and then the language rearranges itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, one of the things I remember John Yao when uh, we were in a class with him saying, uh, the assignment was to write about a, a painting or an artist, and he said, imagine you're an ant walking across the surface. What do you see? And I actually stole that and put that in one of my poems. And so I think that, you know, that's the, 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 the way, both the method and the reason, I think that you get to surrealism. Yeah, the bird's eye view and the ant's eye view uh, exactly. is a great way to think about it. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, so the middle section of the book includes three field entry poems authored by Susan, related by different forms of enumeration and inventorying, but still distinct. Gail and Judson, how did Susan's trilogy of poems separated by your poetry influence what you were writing and how did you react to them? That was really a departure. That was a, a, an exciting moment in the process. And um, I mean, I think it, it, it pushed me to think differently about what I was doing. I'm trying to think now what, what I, it's hard to remember exactly what I was writing when Susan was writing those. But um, I think that it made me think maybe a little bit more structurally mm -hmm about cosmology i mean because we're interested in i and maybe I'm, I'm thinking now of um how some of the poems got into got a little bit more into cosmology for me thinking of the structure of 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 the universe and um i'm, I'm just th trying to think specifically which poems but it definitely reset uh, reset things for us which is your poem? It's called Zoomorphic. Zoomorphic. That's yeah, zoomorphic. Yeah. That was that was a poem that I think was influenced because that's where I was really thinking about the the cosmology and how it was being invented and um, the different layers of reality and the the stars and in relation to you know things in the cave. I think for me it really highlighted this idea of investigation and that you could. Um, sort of peel away any preconceived idea of 
experience, um, you know, with so that, I mean, Susan was giving things, names and labels, but there was no, almost, it was almost like without context right. in a way. So yeah. it was, so it really created a freedom, I think, to be in that experience and it amplified the sense of unknowing that we all were you know, grappling with, I think, as we uh, were in the project, mm. not really knowing, you know, what, what, what were they doing and why were they there and how did they, didn't, I mean, we knew some about how they did it from listening to the scientists in the film, but it's, mm. so highlighted the mystery. Yeah, I thought yeah. those those poems were like they they were both concrete and and ordered and yet mysterious and a, and abstract and surreal at the same time. Another thing too is that was it, it, it was a sense of form. I mean, we we didn't write these poems. We didn't set out to write these poems in any specific form. But when Susan introduced that distinct formal uh, dimension, I think we responded to that. Like I wrote Dower Stage with a kind of re refrain line. I think that was, that definitely made me think about using something a little bit more formal. And so with um, with Dower Stage, I used a refrain line that kept, sh kept shifting. And I think um, then we I played around with the kind of sonnet and, and so forth. So I think it did trigger a little bit of thinking about form. So just a couple more questions before I hand the mic over to each of you to read selections from Chalk Song. Uh, in reading this book, I was reminded of the Beatles song, A Day in the Life, where separate songs by John and Paul came together into something more when, when they shared in the studio. Uh, can you share examples of poems that you wrote that became something more because of this collaborative writing effort? But, you know, if there's a particular example where you feel like you got to a place you may not have gotten to otherwise. Wow. That's a great question. Um, all of them. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Susan. I'm going to try to think specifically. Well, I steal a lot. <laughs> I steal a lot from both Gail and Jetson. And there are moments when, um, like the, 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 the sonnet that I have at the end, which is a form, it's actually the idea of it's taken from John Yao. And I changed the title and I did my own poem. But a lot of those lines and a lot of the images come from Gail and Jetson. And it sort of, sort of felt like it wasn't really my poem. Hmm. And that was a really great feeling, I have to say. And then when looking at Gail and Jetson, there's a moment when they have this interchange in their two poems. I forget what they're called. But it's I Call You This, I Call You That. And those two poems together to me are just absolutely amazing in how they're transforming each other. That's how I feel about them. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there were places when we we borrowed explicitly from each other, and then amusingly, sometimes in our revisions, those the the thing that was borrowed disappeared from our own poem, so it only exists in the book and somebody else's poem. But what Susan was referring to is um, uh, the elegy and the bevel, and and it was kind of like sometimes we would invent a gesture and then that gesture was open for other people to experiment with. And that happened in that poem. I think lexicon is an example of that where it, it combines this idea of, uh, you know, of I call you this, or uh, I forget what the lines are, but you know, this idea of naming. And so I think that that came from sort of Judson's approach to the, I call you X, you call me Y, but also Susan's approach of the sort of the, the long, the field entry poems and the lists of, of 
the sort of the idea of naming. Um, right. oh, yeah. No, I'm glad I asked that question because this, the fact that you actually took lines from each other and a line started over here and ended up over there is uh, that's a really cool side effect of the collaboration. Love that. I, um, mean, I have to yeah. say that Jetson's one of Jetson's poems has my favorite phrase, and it, I had edited out of my poem. <laughs> that was happening too. <laughs> so a chalk song plays with many visual forms and methods of white space displacement from the concrete form of bow to the intended free verse of the combed horse poems. How did the striking visuals and techniques of the cave painters in the Herzog's documentary influence the visual visualization of the poetry, which of course people can't see on the podcast, but they can when they go by the book. Uh, so how did the, the, the visuals in the film affect the visual, not the words, but the actual way you visualize the poetry? Well, Jetson's bow is a, is a classic. That poem is in the shape of a bow. That's pretty incredible. But in a way it's, it's not so much that there were images of bows on the wall of the cave. It was more that the cave wall we came to realize was a membrane and things moved through it. And so when I wrote bow, I was thinking of this idea of pulling, pulling someone through the cave wall. And in fact, I didn't write that poem. I, I recited it to myself while walking. And then when I got home, and started to get it into my uh, word processor, I realized that it had to be shaped, but the, the tension, because it was more about the sense of tension. I was talking about trying to, a relationship with someone, some other behind the cave wall and wanting them and pulling them through the wall. And that the sense of stress, I think, in the poem, like the poem does, is all enjambment. There are no, mm -hmm. there are no line breaks. And it just follows that line. So I think that was almost like more more abstractly thinking about the cave wall rather than thinking about an, an actual image on the cave wall. But certainly the sense of, of the idea of membrane had a huge influence on that poem. So Gail and Susan, did the visuals in the film influence how you thought about visualizing your poetry in any way? some poems didn't we that were more like clouds in the very beginning you and i had these mm -hmm. they're called <laughs> i think one of mine was the horses and yours were in there too i don't um i'm not really sure whether i have to think about that i mean so i have some poems that are you know, that end, a couple that end with a uh, an M dash, and I have um, one that is, you know, where there's Sidora in the middle of lines. So I guess to the extent that there's a feeling of unfinishedness mm -hmm. to the paintings that, that, that created the impetus to have things, leave things, you know, hanging perhaps, or to write poems without punctuation. So first day is an example of that where it just sort of goes on and it doesn't have, doesn't really have a beginning or an end. Um, so yeah, I think those are some ways in which the visuals of the film um, it influenced how, how I set things on the page. No, it's such an interesting observation because the, the cave painters had this massive canvas. It wasn't like a manuscript they hand off to a publisher and there's a certain point where you got to stop because it's right. going to get at least somewhat permanently 
of pigs. I mean, it's semi-permanent to the wall, but it can continue expanding as, lo as long as there is sp wall space, of which there was much more wall space than, and much more wall canvas than ultimately ended up being painted in that massive cave. So I think that's a very interesting observation, yeah. Well, also I'd say my poems had very long lines. They were very expansive. And what's interesting is in the publishing process, you can only have so many characters per yeah. line. Yeah. And that was interesting. I had to pull them in. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm going to yeah. turn the mic over to each of you to read selections from Chalk Song. One bloomed, one fell from a tree. One bloomed a blue praise of daybreak. We were led to dig stars out from under pavement, tar hot, smelt, stinging our eyes. Stories moved in from the margins, birdwing, halo, landlock. You lifted saffron from the crown of an acorn, crayoned negative handprint to tongue. Tell me again in crosshatch, ladder pulled up, river renamed vain. One fell from a tree. My Tattoo Parlor. By the end of the Iron Age, I was gliding off the tundra, bouncing from my sugary afterbirth. I thought that the belly of my mother had held me, but no, she had simply stenciled me into her underpants. Her wounds made many cuneiform rounds after I was born, so I was gentle with her. I drew blue skies over her storms. I hopped in and out of her song. One day she ate winter and then drank the sea. I asked the sea, will my heart clog the inside of a cockle shell? Will I learn how to eat without mauling sunlight? Am I made of bird gas, airy and fresh? The more I threw the sky into my eyes, the more the earth blued. The more I hummed to blue, the more raindrops shattered. Stars fell to each side of the pond, as if light was icing for our universe. I fluttered away, past currents and ferns, under sudden downpours flooded with fur, soft jewels soaked in the shades. It was blueberry season. I laugh now as the sky still spreads long, tangled with crows and summer's sediment. Bare leaves loop through base elements, in a mess of mouse dew. I dress in moo-moos of endless clover. Microbiome. We have sealed rooms already contaminated by our thought, setting up a lab in the midst of our imprint. Did you put your face shield on, which is nothing more than surface and overflow? Did you pocket the telescope arm of your action, arson, sequestration? What we found was more than ancient echo, spotted horses, or starfish symmetry. One of the things that won't tame, that won't translate, won't cooperate, won't draw itself because the mirror will never be invented, because escape hatches, exit ramps will never be invented. We were already there at the source of contamination. The altar was the first machine. Already irritable for the more, the making means of, 
the fallen soft ceiling of spores the size of whims, the most auspicious antlers as candelabra, as time capture, as whole flash fiction. We did not set out to study cave art or hang ourselves from the cave mouth. The guts of the question contained the bacterial answers. One of the things that won't be rendered innocent, innocuous, one of the things that won't be renditioned. You can't draw yourself out of the rock. The footprints collapse into deeper footprints. We have sealed the rooms. There will be no further questions. So it's so wonderful to hear all three of your voices um, in, after reading the book and imagining your voices. So that was wonderful. So just uh, two more questions. And this first question is for all three of you to discuss and debate. Given how many hours you spent exploring and imagining the artistry of painters from tens of thousands of years ago, with so much of the context lost, how do you hope chalk song is interpreted if discovered by explorers tens of thousands of years from now? That's a great question. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hopefully it hasn't rotted. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of imagine like, okay, this is a strange image, but like we've gone back to tribal times, right? Because our civilization has collapsed. <laughs> someone finds this book and it's somehow not rotted and they're around a fire and they're drumming and they're trying to understand it because they no longer understand the language and maybe holding on to like a few phrases and um, making them their own. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, this, the whole experience of writing this book caused me to create a class that I teach now at Berkeley about cave paintings. And one of the things that I kind of came to was the notion that we might have an easier way of understanding the cave paintings now because of the way art has become so unleashed from all the, um, the conventions and traditions. Now that we have art that is scatter art or art that is done by people other than the you know creator or art that is installation or, and, and maybe, Maybe in a certain way, the idea that that someone would discover this and would would feel like some kind of like long, long reach back that you know that somehow that those first handprints are still being you know still echoing into the present in some way. I guess my hope might be that that the poem would, uh, I mean, the the book would exist um, sort of separate from its source, you know, and so that in the same way that we investigated the the caves that really knew nothing about uh, you know how they came about or what they were doing or why that the people would pick this up and it would exist as uh, as a mystery to future people to say well who were who were these people and what was their society and what were they what were they about what were their tools what were their you know methods and so just to be open in the way that we were to um, to Looking, looking, listening, and understanding. I mean, Susan, I love your idea of uh, perhaps we end up back in a more indigenous yes. societal structure that this whole busier, bigger, faster, automated, computerized everything uh, doesn't ultimately work out in the end and that those uh, indigenous ways of organizing 
are much more sustainable. And that, that's interesting. And maybe there's a maybe we maybe we've gone through this cycle multiple times and we don't even realize it. So, uh, so uh, that's for a whole other discussion. So. Uh, finally, uh, each of you share what you're working on now. Judson, let's start with you, then Gail, then Susan. Well, let's see. I'm working on a series of postcard poems that are written by this character um, to me. Uh, it's, it's based on an autobiographical situation, but, but it's a cross-country trip that this person's taking, going to really odd, you know, uh, places. It's in the 90s. They're going to, you know, uh, old McDonald's animal farm where there are, you know, baby feeding stations as well as live crocodiles. And it's a little bit of Americana. It's a little bit of the strangeness of the 90s. And it's um, it, it's in the form of these imaginative postcards. I'm, I'm working on that now. Cool. Yeah. Um Actually, Gail and I are in a workshop that led by a beautiful poet, and I, we've just met her. I can't pronounce her name, and I'm ashamed. I think it's Anna Bosevich. Bosevich? Anyway, she's gorgeous. And I'm actually working on a series of poems that grow. They're actually plants, and they're growing. <laughs> and they have their own voices. So that's where I am right now. I don't know, you two, how would you characterize what I'm working on? I think I'm working on my lifelong quest for um, for meaning and, you know, trying to keep terror at bay. I mean, that's all I can say. Well, but, we do but, have to mention what we're doing together at some point, too. We also are doing a project, another project together, which has to do with kind of thinking about, it's sort of like a homo question mark, sort of this idea of what, what makes, what kind of what makes a human or what makes us human or how did we, how are we becoming? Is it like, it's about being and becoming, I think more about becoming. So um, what is consciousness? I mean, without being too, you know, um, well, never mind. Go ahead. Yeah. You want to go add on? About general, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's not. Well, one question that comes up in 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 the cave uh, in in the documentary is one of the anthropologists says, "Well, Homo sapiens sapien, that's not the right term for humans. We're not that smart." Um, he says, "Maybe Homo spiritualis," and we're kind of throwing around like, "What other names could we come up with?" And and playfully, we've been experimenting. You know, some people like Marx came up with the idea of Homo laborans, like we make ourselves through our labor, or this Dutch historian had Homo ludens, we're the game players, we're the play, you know, players. Or Homo dustpan or something. <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. Or, or, homo head in the clouds. Or something yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I look forward so much to what what each of you are coming up with individually and, and collaboratively in the future. I, I so enjoyed Chalk Song and I encourage those listening to, to now that you've been gotten a little taste to experience the entire book. So thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your voices on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thank, thank you so, so much. much. Thank you. It's been a thank you for such great questions. Yes, yes absolutely. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.